Amen. Thank you, worship team, and uh, first through fifth graders. You are welcome to go down to your class. Uh, we're grateful for those who come and lead worship, uh, those who are teaching God's word and the gospel to our children, and those who are helping us run our technology. We thank you, many of you who serve this church family and serve God in, in a variety of capacities. So thank you for doing that. Uh, I'm excited to begin my new year with you as we look forward to what God has for our church this year. Today we're going to start a new series. We're going to continue in Matthew, so if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we'll be in Matthew again. But as we look forward to what God has for us um, as a church family this year, look at uh, midweek programs start this Wednesday. We're looking forward to having the Iwana kids buzzing, running around here, uh, the island down in the youth room, and our men's and women's studies starting out. I also want to point your attention to the marriage uh, retreat with Kent and Becky Wallace and, and Nathan and Cheyenne. You can see Kent after the service if you want to sign up and attend that. It's February 18th through the 20th. We'd like you to get that on your calendar, but more importantly, like you to see Kent and Becky so that you can sign up and, and be a part of that. I think it will be a restoring, growing time for you uh, to begin your year together. So as we start, uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. And as I said, we're going to start a new series. It's going to keep us in Matthew over the next five weeks. We're going to try to answer this question. The reason why we're looking at this question is I think there's two types of people in this room today. Maybe three. I want to include everybody. But I would say first, I think, maybe if you're like me at points in my life, I've asked this question. I would identify as a Christ follower, as a Christian, I would walk into church on Sunday and say, I believe in Christ, I believe in what he did for me. But there will be events in my life, there are things that happen that cause me to ask, why am I doing this? Why am I following Jesus? And if you've seen what's happened in our church family over the last couple of weeks, you're, you might be thinking this. As we encounter the year that we had last year and the year before that, and things are just awful, we see sin real and in front of us in the world, and we see uh, division and animosity present like maybe you haven't seen before in your life, and in your own heart, you might be asking this question. As a Christ follower, why follow Jesus? Why is it that I would do that? You might be thinking, you don't know what I've prayed, you don't know what I've gone through, what I've asked for, what I've heard, what I learned. You might be thinking those things, and so you sum that all up and say, why follow Jesus? Well, you might also be another type of person here today, or watching this stream, or, or this video a year from now. And you might be thinking, who is Christ? Why do people gather, worship him? What is a reason why I would give up what I have? Why I would turn from what I'm, what I'm good with? I'm good. Why follow Jesus? Why do I need him? Why do I need to add that to my life? And I think that over the next five weeks, we're going to look at Matthew introducing us to Christ, introducing us to his followers, and we're going to answer this question, Lord willing, for you, so that if, if, you're, if you're like me and you're a Christ follower, but you need to be reminded of why to stay faithful and walk with him and rely on him, that this would do that. This would be that encouragement. And, and more importantly, if you don't know him, because we exist as a church to proclaim the good news about Jesus Christ, what he's done, who he is in this community and around the world. That's why we, we do things like the year-end projects that spread the gospel elsewhere. Maybe if, if you're like that, you'll hear this, and, 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 the, and the God of the Bible, the Lord that we're going to proclaim today, will reach into your heart and, and cause you to get to know him, cause you to turn and follow him. That's why we started this service about 
singing about turning and following Christ, surrendering to him, because we do want you to do that. And we need to continually do that as Christ followers in our lives. I'll begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into Matthew chapter 3. God, I do depend on you this morning that you'll uh, send your spirit to give understanding of your word as we talk about hard things and react to hard things in our lives and encounter them. With whatever this year would hold for us, I just ask that as we spend time in the gospel this morning and, and for the coming weeks that you would answer this question in our hearts, that you would help us, meet with us, be our encouragement to follow Jesus and that you'd send the Spirit to bring conviction where it's needed and to aid us in repentance as we talk about that, and that we wouldn't, um, we wouldn't become complacent. That's not what the world needs from, from us as your followers, Father. So just be with us in this work and speak through your word today. Help them to hear the truth. And as I ask, just shut my mouth if it's not the truth and, and let them hear you this morning in your word. Thank you that we can gather as a church family and for providing the space and the time of worship together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as I said, I'm looking forward to this series. I think uh, as we get into a story where we meet John the Baptist today, uh, there's something here that, that will, will either encourage you or Lord willing convict you to uh, answer this question in your own heart. So let's begin reading in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So in those days is a phrase that just tells you this is next after what we just read, but it's not immediately after. If you were with us last couple weeks, you saw Jesus go down to Egypt with his family to escape the wrath of Herod, who was killing babies born in Bethlehem. And then after some time, Joseph brought his family back up to Israel, and they took up residence in Nazareth. So you'll fast forward now with the author Matthew to where Jesus and John the Baptist are adults. John the Baptist, if you have read Luke's account, is probably only six months older than Jesus. So they're both adults. And at this point, Jesus is probably with his family in Nazareth or on his way down to where he will meet John the Baptist. Just know that. If, if you're familiar with me and Sarah, anytime I say the other day, you'll need to look at her and say, is that yesterday or is that 2008? If I begin a story and say, this happened the other day. So this is a saying much like Brendan uses the phrase the other day. So John the Baptist, he's, he's named after what he does, and we'll get to see him do that here in a moment. So we, we find that he's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Just to reacquaint ourselves with this map that you've seen before, I think this map shows us a couple of important things. You see how there's different colors. That's to show you there's different, there's different parts of this kingdom being ruled by different rulers. This is, this is Matthew meeting Israel at the beginning of the gospel. They're divided up by by the rulers that followed after Herod the Great, his sons took and divided the kingdom. And so you have one nation divided up. And this is where John the Baptist comes. He comes into the green portion here down on the south side of the kingdom in Judea, near the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. This zoomed-in map might help you a little bit better. There's two red dots. The southern dot is Jerusalem. Jerusalem will, will figure in this story. It's helpful to know that this took place close to Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem on the Jordan River, and due north of that, up in the northern part of the kingdom, the red dot is Nazareth. That's where Jesus is at this point, where, where he is before the ministry begins, and it just helps you to see where this is taking place. So John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he has a short message for us today. He has a short message for the people that hear him in the wilderness. 
we're going to break that down and see what it tells us about who God is, particularly who Jesus is and why we should follow him this morning and throughout our lives. He calls, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a basic statement. In fact, this is much like this is the first thing that he says to the people who are listening to him later when Jesus begins his ministry. It's how he starts preaching. He calls people to repentance. We're going to break this down because you've heard the word repentance a lot. You've, you've heard that in this church. If we're not talking about Jesus or repentance, we're not talking about God's word. So we need to go through what repentance is and what repentance is not so you understand the dire nature of what John is saying to the people hearing him in this message. So you've seen those, those uh, illustrations that Nathan or others have used where you have an arrow changing directions. You're turning around and going the other way. Well, repentance is like that. It's this moment in your life where you realize what you're doing is sin. It is, is something that divides and takes you away from God. And you stop doing that. But it's not just stopping to do that. It's turning and heading in the opposite direction, away from that behavior towards Christ. C.S. Lewis refers to it as movement, full steam, astern. So if you think about a ship plowing forward and reversing the engines and turning around, full speed. It's not just that mere moment where you realize, I can't be doing this anymore. So John is calling people to turn and follow something other than what they're following. And we'll get a picture of what they might be following here in a minute as we meet parts of the crowd. But I ask you, what is it that you're following right now? Who are you following? What are you following? What is it that you would need to repent from? We, we all have something that we can repent from because this isn't a one-time thing. There is a moment of repentance as you accept Christ as your Savior, if you are a Christ follower here today. But there's also a need for constant repentance as we find things that draw us away from God, are attractive to us, that we bind ourselves to and choose over serving and following him. So John starts by saying, this is needed. You better do this. We'll find out why here in a moment. He also references something called the kingdom of heaven. You'll hear kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. And there's a lot of material out there about what these are and, and what this means. But what he's telling the people there, and keeping in mind where they're at, they're 400 years after they've heard the last prophet speak. They're in a divided, occupied kingdom ruled by a pagan culture, two pagan cultures if you count the Hellenization that's happened, where the Greek influence has come in. So they're looking at kingdom differently and they're also looking at God and heaven differently because it's been a long time since they've heard anybody talk authoritatively about what that would be. He's saying, hey, we're going to talk about that again. The kingdom of heaven is the authority that where, where God exercises his authority over the events on earth and, and mankind. The plan that he has that you heard about 400 years ago, ago from Malachi, that's going to happen. And see, I think this is him breaking through kind of this complacency and kind of maybe lack of faith after 400 years of not knowing that God is working and moving in these people. He's saying, it's about to happen. This power and authority that we'll hear about in a moment is going to be exercised where he, where he comes and does work, demonstrates what being in this kingdom is like. Last, John says it's at hand, so it's within reach. It's very close. And it's so close that you'll meet the king next week when we when we start into the passage next week so he says it's really close again don't think that God has somehow stopped working because you haven't heard from a prophet don't think that God has somehow stopped working because the people in control are not who you would choose the decisions being made in this country are not what you would choose don't think that he's not in control because that's happening it's very close 
And there's something that we need to do in response to that news. So Matthew continues by giving you this kind of parenthetical statement explaining more about who John the Baptist is. And if you're interested in who John the Baptist is, you can also go over to Luke's account. He talks more about who John is. So Matthew lets you know, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Matthew's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 3, saying, you know how for the last couple chapters of my book I've been telling you God is keeping his promises? We saw that over the last series of Christmas gifts. This was done to fulfill the prophets. Matthew's doing that again. He's saying, this was prophesied about too. This man, John the Baptist, that you're hearing from, God is keeping his promise that he made in Isaiah before the Messiah comes. Someone's going to introduce him, pave the way for him, make it clear that now is the time. If nothing else, I hope as, as Christ followers, you're reminded of the grace of a God who would warn you about the warning. He's going to tell you ahead of time what he's coming to do. And so he says this in Isaiah, and Matthew takes the time to point out God's keeping this promise. Because this is what he does. You've heard that a couple times in the last couple chapters. So he, he quotes this passage out of Isaiah saying, there will be somebody who comes, a messenger who will come in the wilderness, and he's going to pave the way into your heart for, for the message that I have. This message who's going to be a person. John wore a garment of camel's hair, in verse 4, and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. You, you think about this passage, and you're like, why does he include this description? And many of you probably understand this and see where this is going. This description's for a reason. He looks like a thing. He looks like a particular office. And that's what Matthew wants you to understand is he's wearing this this kind of odd outfit and has this odd behavior for an actual reason. What Matthew's trying to show you is that John represents somebody else, some other person you've seen in Israel's history. If, if you were a Jew, you'd probably understand this. You'd be reminded of 1 Kings, or Second uh, Kings chapter 1, where, I, where Elijah's described as wearing a coat of hair and a leather belt. See, if we look at uh, the prophecy about when John the Baptist was going to be born that was given to Zechariah. The angel Gabriel says that he's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. So we're trying to be, Matthew is trying to remind us that what John the Baptist is doing is speaking to God's people on God's behalf. We, we should listen to him. But there's, there's a result that's expected out of this message. Much like the results that were expected out of Elijah's message of, of turn from these other gods and follow the one true God. There's an expectation of that from John. It also shows you that he wasn't somebody who was just good-looking, a smooth speaker, had a nice suit, and drove a nice car, and that's why people followed him. I think of like the description of Christ. There was no outward reason to follow him. I think the same could be said of John. It was about his message, and he'll actually point that out when he begins to, to speak. So Matthew continues in verse 5 by saying, Then Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So his message had an effect. And so that region, down by the Dead Sea, near, near the Jordan River, and near Jerusalem, all the people gathered to hear what he had to say. And much like Christ's ministry, which you're familiar with, because we've gone through the Gospels before, there's crowds attracted, and those crowd, crowds compo composed of a bunch of different types of characters. There were people who were following him, there were people who hated him. 
There are people who are on the edge just kind of wondering what this means. And Matthew shows that this is no different with John the Baptist. In verse 6 he says, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So not only does John preach a message of repentance, and, and we'll hear more of his actual message in a moment, but there's, there's some action taking place. And baptism would have been completely strange because it was a practice that Jews would have been associated with or familiar with, but it wasn't usually done this way. Generally speaking, the baptisms in that time would be a washing, a ritual washing. If you were defiled or unclean and wanted to worship in the temple, you had that defilement or uncleanliness between you and God, so you had to be ritually cleansed to worship. So it calls to mind that image. And secondly, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to convert to Judaism, there were many steps you had to take, some of which were very unpleasant. And you had to, you had to change the way you were living in accordance with Jewish law, and then you were baptized as an initiation into Judaism. So I want you to be thinking about those two pictures, the, the cleansing and the, and the initiation as we, we imagine John baptizing people in repentance. And it helps us by saying they were confessing their sins. So there's something very humbling happening here where people, people not only realize what they're doing is wrong, like I said when, when we talked about repentance, it's not merely just recognizing this is sin, Okay, I'll keep going. It's recognizing, I'm going to delineate this as sinful behavior. I'm confessing it. I'm pointing it out before God and man that I cannot do this and be right with God. And they're confessing that to John as they're being baptized. This is something that is a reaction to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When he saw, in verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Welcome. I'm glad you're here. He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So Matthew introduces these two parties, and we're going to see them. If you continue reading Matthew, you'll see the Pharisees and Sadducees come up. And I think he, he shows you that they were there from the beginning, so they got no excuse for what happens to them. And they were there at the beginning, so you can see, you get to get used to, unfortunately, the types of people that resist the message that Christ will later bring. So you meet the Pharisees. The Pharisees were these, this group that you're probably more familiar with than the Sadducees, because we talk about them a lot more. Nobody really calls anybody a Sadducee. But every once in a while, you might call somebody a Pharisee. This, the Pharisees were, were particularly... Um, occupied with following the law in a way that, that presented themselves as righteous before God, or so they thought. Later, when Jesus criticizes them in Matthew, he says, you've, you've made more rules and made them a burden for people to follow. You've, you've actually held people away from God by rules because you've made it so hard, an oppressive burden to follow. And the Pharisees were thinking that their outward appearance is going to be what will please God and will, will avoid the wrath to come. The Sadducees were a different group, smaller, and they were, they were mainly concerned with operating the temple. So when, in Mark, when Jesus goes into the temple and flips the, the tables of money and, and calls out people being thieves and robbers in the temple, he's doing something that the Sadducees would have been very aware of and probably incensed by. See, the Sadducees were this group of people, maybe you know someone like this. They've got power, influence, 
They've got money, maybe not from a legitimate means, but they've, they've got their security and their money. So Matthew introduces us to these two groups of people so that we, I think, are wary of this lifestyle of, of having it all together through the rules, just being a good person, or having security. I don't need it. Why would I follow Jesus? I've got everything I can need. I've got, I've got income. This would be later a problem for the Sadducees when the temple's destroyed in AD 70. Their income's going to be gone. So it's a, it's a foreshadowing, too, of what you put your faith in if it's something like that, it could, get, it could get wiped off the face of the earth, and, and where would you be then? Let's get back to John, though. He calls him a brood of vipers. He's saying, what you do is poisonous. It will kill people. It's dangerous. It leads to death. The viper is a poisonous snake, as you probably know. You get bit by that, there better be some anti-venom. Otherwise, you'll die. And he wants them to know, like, you are the children of a snake. You're a group of snakes, and, and what's going to happen is... is that, that outward appearance or that financial security God that you follow is going to cause the death of many. But he asked him this rhetorical question about who warned you to flee the wrath to come? And I think that John is leaving a door open a little bit here. He says, if you've really been warned, if you're really repentant, you're going to do something. And see, so I, I imagine that the, you have the river here where John is preaching and the Pharisees are standing up on the, the, the bank just kind of watching and they're just kind of seeing, is this guy a threat? He's got a crowd. He's got a movement. The Sadducees would say, is it going to ruin our relationship with Rome or impact our temple use? And he's saying, if you're really here for a reason, if you've been warned and that's why you're here and you're responding to my message, you should show fruit of that. So he says that. Verse 8, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And I think this is, is not, not only God telling us through John's words what we need to do, but John leaving the door open for the Pharisees to say, and Sadducees, if, if you're really convicted of this, you'll, sh you'll show it by the fruit that you show. The door is open for repentance for even people who have it all together and have financial security. But you have to bear fruit. So just to eliminate one other thing that, that Jews of that time would also hide behind besides financial security having the rules all together. And Jesus will later encounter the same argument from the Pharisees. In verse 8, he says, or verse 9, he says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. See, he's saying this, this thing, this the family line of being a Jew and being able to trace your line back to Abraham, I know this is on all your minds and don't think it's going to do you any good. He says kind of an odd statement here to close this thought, but he says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I think what he's saying here is if, if God cared about having kids, he'd just create all these rocks into people, and he'd, have, he'd just have more, more children of Abraham. He, he's encountering the same excuse, though, that Pharisees and scribes will use later with Jesus to say, we know who our father is. He's Abraham. We're good. God's not going to punish his own kids. So verse 10, John really dials up the judgment imagery. This is where we see the reason for repentance and just the dire situation that this one who's going to come after him is going to bring to Israel and to all mankind. In verse 10 he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. So again, remember, 400 years of silence. Maybe there's some complacency in Israel where it's not an immediate problem. We know judgment will come someday, but like, I don't need to be worried about it yet, right? And he says, 
you know when you chop a tree down and you touch the axe to the bark to show where it's going to hit? He says, God is doing that now. He's, he's sizing up the tree and he's got the axe in his hands. He doesn't have to get ready to go to work. He doesn't have to warm himself up. The axe is at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not hear, bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, a lot is being introduced here at the beginning of Matthew. And this imagery of good fruit, bad fruit, productive vines, productive trees, is something that you'll hear frequently in the gospel. And he's saying, if there's not life, if there's not a life that gives fruit, using this tree as an image, this tree is going to meet the axe. Judgment that he calls axe and fire is going to happen. And, and because there's no life, this tree is is not giving life to those around it. It's not producing fruit. It's not doing what it's been created to do. So he pivots and says, I baptize you with water for repentance. He's saying this baptism is a picture, much like the baptisms that we're going to do in a couple weeks as a church family. They are a picture of something that Christ has done in you and a picture of you joining the church. He says, this is a picture. I've baptized you with water, but don't get too focused on that. He says, the one who's coming after me is mightier than I. John is amazing in that he balances this like bold, brood of vipers, call to repentance, fire and judgment call with, I'm, I'm not the big deal here. The one who comes after me is mightier than I. Your translation might say more powerful or greater. Think about strength and authority mixed. A king that not only has power, but the ability, the authority to carry out that power. He's saying, he's mightier than I am. So don't get focused on me and just become my disciple and because of that, miss out on the bigger picture. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. John says, I am the servant's servant. I can't even handle his shoes and carry them around. He says, don't let the, the dire nature of my message, because a crowd is... A crowd is forming, and he wants to make sure that they're there for the right reason. So this tells us what we need to know about the Savior that's coming, the one that John is paving the road for, paving the way for. This tells us about who that is. This helps us answer, why follow Jesus? And if, like I said, if you're one of the groups of people here who have experienced what many in our church have experienced. And you say, I am a Christ follower, but I'm asking this question of why follow Jesus after what I've gone through and this loss and, and trial? And why follow Jesus when everything's going okay? Maybe, maybe life is good for you right now and everything's put together. You've got what you need. And the answer is the same for, for either party. He's mightier. He's mightier than all of that difficulty and loss and hard things that you've gone through. He can turn the, the bad to good, the Bible says. He can do what people did for evil purposes. He can change those for good, for good results in you. But he's also mightier than that facade of following the rules and financial security. Again, I think it's ironic to think about the Sadducees pilfering off the temple, making money, thinking this relationship with Rome is really paying off when in some of their lifetimes, the temple is going to be knocked off of its foundation and the city is going to be in ruins. They put their faith in the wrong thing. So he's mightier than that financial security, than that shell, that outer covering that looks like righteousness, but it's just you following rules. John helps us understand this mightiness 
at work, though. He, he gives us images in the rest of the passage that help us understand what is this mightiness going to look like? How will we know? How will the people at that time that he's talking to, and how will you and I see this work out? First, he shows in one verse that this will be displayed in us. He uses this image that you... I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. I'm so excited to use my prop. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So in you, what he's going to do, and then you'll see it elsewhere, but in you, what he's going to do is not only baptize you like I am with water, but this is a picture of something else. And if you've followed us through Acts, I think about a year and a half ago when we went through the, the book of Acts, there was a moment when the apostles were gathered where the Holy Spirit came down onto the believers. There were little tongues of fire over their head representing God with us became God in us through his Holy Spirit. And John's saying, not only is God going to come after me in the person of Jesus Christ, he hasn't named him, but in the person, but he's also going to be in you. This will be a sign of his mightiness. He can actually do this in you in spite of the fact that you're tempted to wear the shell of righteousness or, or, or put your money as your God. He's saying he can, he can baptize you with his spirit for repentance and conviction, understanding of his word, strength, the helper, the Holy Spirit's call, and with fire. And I think fire gets mentioned a couple times here. And I think in this fire, we could look at that as he'll also purify you because you do want to go do those sinful things and you do want to bind yourself to these things that are going to draw you away. And he's going to do the hard work of purifying you, much like fire will. In Malachi, a couple of times in Malachi, it talks about how Elijah or someone like Elijah is going to come and pave the way for, for this, this, this Messiah. And the Messiah is going to be a refiner's fire, different type of fire than we're going to talk about here in a minute. But John is saying he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and he's also going to, he's also going to purify you, make you more precious, eliminate this dirt, this uncleanliness of sin out of your life. So he's going to display this might to us in us, and what he does to us. Those who repent and follow Christ, this, this one who comes after John, will see a result from that. John also warns, because this part's a little less comforting, he warns that he will display this might in the world. This is where the necessity of repentance comes, because this is what decides which end of the spectrum you fall on. He says his winnowing fork is in his hand. So he talks about this, this process that that farmers then would understand. Not many of us probably do this this way anymore, but there are many farmers in our church family. See, this is what I was excited about. <laughs> but we shouldn't be that excited about it. He talks about winnowing, and, and it's important for you to understand how winnowing works because this is a picture of what he says, hey, don't be complacent. This is what God is ready to do. He's, he's coming to do this. He has his fork in his hand. It's not in his barn. He's not sitting on the couch. He has his fork in his hand and he's ready to do this work in the world. So the way that this would work is after you harvest your crop, you have an area at your farm where you're going to thresh the crop. And there's a couple of tools that you'd use. One is this winnowing fork where you see this person tossing the wheat in the air to separate the chaff, this outer covering. It's, it's of no value, it's of no worth, it's, it's got no life inside of it. From the wheat, the kernel that you want, so you can make bread, dough, and food. 
And John is warning that God is ready to do this to the earth and he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. They call that husk, that hull, the chaff. And one of the ways he's going to do that is he's going to take his winnowing fork and he's going to stab it into the pile of, leaves, or pile of wheat and toss it in the air. This is why this is a hard thing because that's, that's violent. That's hard. He's going to do this, though, to separate the wheat from the chaff. And he's going to do this over and over as he separates the wheat from the chaff and the straw. And John is warning that this is what this person who's going to follow me is going to do. He also says, though, he's going to clear his threshing floor. I look at this part as, as good news. After all, he's ready to do this work. And he's got his winnowing fork in his hand. But him clearing the threshing floor means he's going to finish it. He's so strong, he's so mighty, that this is not something he thinks about doing or starts and then stops because he's tired. He's going to clean the threshing floor of his work. This is something you do after you separate the wheat and the chaff. Your threshing floor is clean. This is good news for us that follow him to know that God is going to finish the work that he started. As soon as, as, soon as sin came into the world and redemption was an absolute necessity for mankind, our soul's hope was that he would finish this work. And John is saying, he's going to clear the threshing floor. He's going to finish his job. You see the threshing floor here is this large stone area where he separated this chaff from the wheat. You have these piles off to the side of the chaff. And in the back, you have a couple bundles of wheat. John is saying, don't get complacent because you haven't heard from a prophet like me in a long time. Because the one who comes after me is going to finish it. And he is really close. He will gather his wheat into the barn. This is the other part that is both hard but good news. And we've experienced this in reality over the last couple of weeks. See, the wheat goes through the threshing process, that hard thing. It goes through that to be separated from the chaff. But gathering is what we want. That's As wheat, that's what we want. We want to be gathered safely into his barn. It does no good for us to lay out on the threshing floor, to stay in the field, going to be no good. The, the wheat would rot. The wheat would be eaten by bugs and, and rodents. John says the wheat that he wants, that he's doing this work to separate, he's going to protect. He's going to bring it into his barn. This gathering word is a word you'll hear Jesus use. It's in, the Matthew, it's in a passage in Matthew 2, and I just want you to hear to balance the, the, this hard call for repentance, because Christ the Savior is also going to be Christ the Judge. I want you to hear, though, his heart was to gather you, you and I. In fact, he says this to the city who's going to kill him shortly after he says this. In Matthew 23, 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing we're not willing to repent, not willing to part with that chaff in our own lives of, of this false righteousness or this financial security and stability, the I've got it good enough as it is, I don't really need himness. And he's saying, don't forget that God's heart always was to gather you to himself, to fix the problem of sin so that you could be with him. And he gives you this picture of the farmer gathering his wheat, protecting it in the barn. But he ends on a hard note. This call for repentance is important because the chaff he's got a plan for too. So I think this speaks to the fact that he wouldn't really have any authority if he didn't have total authority. 
he wouldn't really have any might if he didn't have might over evil, if he couldn't judge, if he could only save and not judge at the same time. So John warns those gathered, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and just the common folk who hope God has a plan for them. He warns them, don't be the chaff. Verse 12, he says, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. It's not temporary. It's not just a little bonfire. Unquenchable, unrelenting fire. See, this is because the chaff is just a husk. It's got no life. It's got nothing inside that will create anything new. It's just a shell. And John's saying, if, if, you're this, if you just have this shell, if you're this chaff, God has a plan, a plan of judgment for evil. This is hard news, but this is where God, we can count on. The work that he's going to finish is going to include a punishment for evil, where he separates his own and punishes evil. As we finish this, this, this portion of the scripture and we start this series, I want you to know that whether you're asking a question of, of why keep following Jesus, why should I do this because of this year that I've had, this week that I've had, and there's some of you who are asking that question for understandable reasons. I just want you to know he's mightier than those things. He's mightier than the loss and illness that you've experienced, the heartache. He's going to gather you. That's what he wants to do. That's what he wanted to do to the city that killed him. He's mightier than the evil that affects us, that we see in the world and burdens us and, and causes us to groan like all creation and say, just come back, Jesus, just come back. He's mightier than that evil because he has a plan to judge that evil and we will do that. So as I encourage you to, like John would say, repent and follow him. That's a, con a constant call for us as Christ followers. And how do you know you're repenting? Well, think of first the humility the humility that it took for those folks to get down in the river and confess their sins to John. So I want to ask you, when's the last time you repented of something? Because we can all repent of something. There's something in all of us. There's nobody who's really like the Pharisees or the Sadducees and really actually has it all together. They had something they could repent of. All of us could repent. So when is the last time in your mind that you've encountered something that you know to be sin in your life, you've had that conviction, but you haven't just said, well, I'm okay though. I've got it together. I'm a good person overall. My score is still high enough. And you've actually turned and fled it in the opposite direction. As C.S. Lewis says, full steam astern. Full speed astern. I think about, in repentance, this image that I had that's real and silly at the same time. Kind of like me. There's this image that I have. Where if you're going down a divided highway, 60 miles an hour, and you realize you're going the wrong way, you pull a U-turn immediately. I've got to do this. You know? It'd be really uncomfortable. It'd probably break some stuff. The people in your car will be really mad. Unfortunately, repentance will have the same effect. It will be really uncomfortable at first. When you realize you're headed the wrong way, you're plowing towards sin, bound to it, and you turn from it, there's going to be some discomfort. There will be people in your car who think you're doing the wrong thing. Imagine a Pharisee breaking from the Pharisees or a Sadducee saying the paycheck's too good, I need to leave and follow this poor guy who wanders the desert. People around you will notice that, but think about how dire that is. If, if your car is steaming off a cliff and you hit, you, hit this, you hit this repentance, this full 180 and you turn, it'll be hard, but it'll require some humility 
Lastly, John tells his followers to bear fruit. He says, if you're really repenting, there will be something that can be seen. This message has such an effect on his followers in Luke's account, they actually ask a follow-up question. Well, what do we do, John? What, what does this look like? Give me like a tangible example. We don't have time to go there, but he gives examples of giving of yourself, not abusing your authority, sharing what you have, caring for others, stuff that they were not experiencing from the people in charge in their nation. They were not experiencing from these people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that they trusted to keep them on track. He says, bear fruit that, that is consistent with repentance, that is different than what the people around you, desperate, hurting people in the world, are experiencing on a daily basis. Bear the kind of fruit that points people to this Christ. So as we close, I just want to encourage you, if you're of the group of people who are hurting and asking this question and hoping that 2022 is a year where Christ somehow becomes easier to follow and this walk becomes easier, understand that all of this difficulty, everything that our church family has experienced and the things we don't know about, the things that hurt too much to talk about, that Christ is mightier than all of those things. And understand that if you're here and you haven't acknowledged that and you haven't repented, that is a completely foreign thing to you. Much like John left the door open, we do that today and we say, you can do that. You can repent. Again, it's our mission to drive people to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if you want to do that today, we would love to talk to you after church. Pastor Nathan and I would love to pray with you, talk to you. We'd love to be there when you make that hard 180. We'll be happy. We'll be glad. We won't criticize you. It'll be a good thing that points you towards the one who is mightier. Let me pray. God, I'm grateful that you extend grace to us just by giving us your word, but so much more in giving us your son. Father, I just pray for people who watch this service, hear this message, my brothers and sisters here in person and those online, that you would lift their spirits be their comfort and encourager, their help this week. There are many who don't know how to continue, and I just ask that you would show them that. And those that don't know you, I just ask that you'd prick their hearts with your spirit and cause them to see that their current life, this shell that they have, that they're trusting is, is good enough. Whatever it is that they would, they would see they need to turn away from it and flee it and that you're ready to receive them when they do. We do look forward to when you gather us all, Father, and I just ask until then that you'd watch us and guide us and be good to this church and to your church, your bride across the world. Thank you for this morning and our time together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.